Well, I want to say what a treat it was to worship with you all today. Uh, thank you, Pastor Steve and team. Man, uh, if you can't preach after that, you're, you're just in a bad place, right? I, Pastor Rick is blessed here if he gets to come up after you all have been listening and singing to the Lord, and then you're now ready to listen to his word. I'm delighted to get to be with you today. As was mentioned, my name is Rick Reed, and I serve at Heritage College and Seminary. And I want to start by just giving a big shout-out and thank you to those of you at Calvary. You have sent us some really top-flight students. I've only been there three and a half years, but I've gotten to know a handful of them and uh, have really appreciated uh, your impact as a church on their lives as they've come to study with us. I also want to thank you for uh, being connected to sending us some of our profs. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but uh, I was just making a mental map as I drove down here today. I can think of at least three. Uh, Pastor Keith who will be uh, speaking uh, tonight. I think he's with us tonight. He's been a part of your congregation for a good while. I see Ruth here today. And then uh, some of you will know John Stairs, Pastor John Stairs. He's at Temple Baptist, used to be here at Calvary. And now uh, he is actually serving as an adjunct part-time with us, teaches a preaching course with me. So I get to know John quite a bit. He speaks so well of you. And then Frank Vandermeulen. Some of you will remember Frank and Eleanor. They got roots here too. There's maybe more, so I, I'm sorry if I missed anybody, but you all have been a real blessing to our school. And I just want to say on behalf of the school, I do have a table out there, and uh, we have a college and a seminary. We may be new to some of you on the college level. Essentially, we offer like a one-year certificate if you just want to come and say, I just need to get anchored in the scripture before I go off into engineering or computer science or nursing or whatever you're going to do. We have that one year, kind of a gap year program, but we also offer fully accredited degrees in Bible, theology, music, youth, missions, bunch of things, and uh, it's a vibrant place. Let me just tell you what, we, we emphasize five things with our college students. Learn to know God through his word, right? Lead yourself first, because until you can learn to lead yourself, you're actually dangerous leading others. So lead yourself first, love others well, Lift up the church. We're training people who love the church and finally live on mission. We move them out in the community. So that's the college. If we can uh, help you on that, uh, just uh, I'd be happy to chat with you. I'll be out there afterwards. On the seminary level, we're training those who will be the pastors for our movement, those who will be uh, leaders, key men and women who will serve in the church. And uh, we, uh, we're trying to train a bunch of expository preachers. I got to tell you a fun story. I, w I slipped into Calvary a number of months ago. We were on our way through, slipped in for a morning service, and Pastor Rick was finishing up Judges. And he said, I've never preached this before, but this is the next section. And he preached Judges 19, 20, and 21, which is, I'd never heard a sermon on Judges 19 to 21. It's, a, it's an amazingly complex and difficult and ugly passage of human sin. And he preached it, and I was so proud of him. We're trying to train up people that are just going to say what God says over and over and over. We have programs, and I was happy to hear, uh, I think uh, Steve mentioned, we got a class offered right here at your church this fall in apologetics. So that's awesome. We have classes for women, special class on women in service uh, this fall. So anyway, a lot of things on the table. If you're interested, talk to me afterwards. But I'm here because I get to preach the Word of God, and you're a congregation that loves the Word of God. You know, as we walked into church this morning, I don't know if you're aware of it, but they were finishing up the marathon, the men's marathon at the Olympic Games in Rio. 
Uh, today's the final day of the Olympics, and uh, one of the signature events of the entire Olympics, kind of historically and even currently, is the men's marathon. Started at 8, at 8.30, and uh, I'm guessing it just wrapped up. While I love watching the sprinters, Usain Bolt and all those guys, I most admire the marathoners. What a grueling thing they do. 26.2 miles that they run. 22.6 miles. And, and the world record, get this, the world record in the marathon is held by a man from Kenya, unless they broke it today. But up till today, it was held by a man from Kenya who ran the 26.2 miles in two hours, two minutes, and 57 seconds. Can you imagine that? You can't even drive to 26 miles in Toronto in two hours and two minutes. I mean, this guy runs it. Can you imagine how grueling that must be to keep that pace for that long? But if you want to talk about the grueling aspect of the men's marathon, you need to talk to a guy named John Stephen Aquari. John Stephen Aquari ran for Tanzania in the 1968 games in Mexico City. Here's his story. He's a world-class runner. He's running there in about mile 12, so almost halfway through. He gets tripped up with some other runners, takes a nasty fall, rips up his leg, his shoulder, and so they patch him up. But worst of all, he dislocates his knee. I've never done that, but I imagine that hurts a bit, don't you think? So they're patching him up and ready to cart him off to, to a doctor place, and he says, no, I want to finish the race. They say, what do you mean you're going to finish the race? So he gets up. His knee's been dislocated. I don't know. Maybe they popped it back in. He keeps running for 14 more miles. By the time he gets to the Olympic Stadium, it's an hour after the winners had finished. So most people in the stadium had gone. There's only a couple thousand people left in the big stadium as he limps in, crosses the finish line. Afterwards, a reporter asked him, why in the world did you finish the race? You had no chance to win. You were deeply hurt. Why did you finish? He said this. His answer is classic. He said, my country didn't send me 5,000 miles to start the race. My country sent me 5,000 miles here to finish the race. Now, I tell you that because there really is a message in that for those of us who are followers of Christ. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you've come to know Christ, you are called to finish your race. Jesus didn't save you just so you could start it and run for a while. He, call, he called you and saved you so that you would finish your race. You see, if you're a Christian, you're in a race. It's not a sprint, it's more of a marathon. It began the day you gave your heart to Christ, when you realized you needed a Savior and that Jesus is the Savior you need. And you reached out by simple faith and said, Lord, forgive me, save me. On that day, at that moment, you became his child, but you also were entered into his race. And now for the rest of your life, until you cross the finish line into heaven, you are running. But here's what I found as someone who's been at this for a while. The middle miles of the Christian life can feel grueling. There will be stretches of your race of faith that seem particularly difficult. Sometimes it's going to feel like everybody else has more breath and more strength than you do, and you're just kind of barely going on. You're weary, you're winded, and you're thinking, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to keep going. 
Sometimes you will face the headwinds of opposition. Could be from family and friends, could be from colleagues or classmates, and it will feel like your race is like straight uphill. And you're, you're thinking, I don't know if I can make this. Sometimes you will take a nasty spill. You'll stumble into sin, and you will fall and feel spiritually dislocated. And you'll be tempted to think, maybe I'm just disqualified, or maybe I'm done. So my question for you is this. What does it take to run the race of your life for your entire life? What does it take to stay in the race? What does it take when it feels uphill and against the wind? Where do you find the strength to continue to press on with endurance? That's the subject we want to talk about today, and the passage that answers it for us is found in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. So would you take a Bible with me and join me in Hebrews chapter 12? One of the things I admire about your church is that you're a people that love the Word of God. And when I was pastoring at the Med in Ottawa, I would often say to the people, please open up the Bible. If you have one, open it. If you don't have one, get one. We'll get you one and bring it. Because it doesn't matter what I say up here. It even doesn't matter what Pastor Rick says up here unless what we say lines up with what God says, right? So you want to be listening and looking at God's word because if God says it, then it has all the authority of heaven and earth. Today I want to talk to you about running the race of your life. What does it take to run with endurance for a lifetime? How do you run so that you finish well? We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. Let me pray for us. I know we've prayed, but I love to ask God's help for me and for us before we start. Father in heaven, I thank you that we've been able to lift our voices and praise you today. And now we ask that you would quiet our souls and still the uh, swirl of thoughts in our heads so that we can hear from you. I pray that your word would be clear to us. I pray that I would be true to it and that we would be responsive to you. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you know a little bit about this book that we call Hebrews, you might know that it was written, we don't know the author, but we do know that it was written to some Jewish Christians. They had been, come from a Jewish background largely. They had come to embrace Jesus as Messiah and Savior and Lord, and they had started to live their race of faith. But they started getting some headwinds of opposition. It started getting harder. People were pushing back on them. They were finding this Christian life very, very challenging. And some of them were starting to waver. Some of them were starting to wobble. Some of them were starting to think, I don't know if I can do this. I might have to drop out. I might need to go back to what I used to have. And the author of Hebrews writes to call them on to say, no, 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 don't do that. Stay in the race. And here in chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, he kind of brings it to a head and gives them a very, very strong and helpful challenge to stay in the race. So this comes to us because some of us feel like they did. So listen as I read those words, verses 1, 2, and 3 of Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance or endurance 
the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In these verses, the author challenges the believers who hear his words, and that it would be all of us, to run the race with perseverance, into verse one, to run with endurance, to run the race of your life. But he does more than just tell them what they should do, he tells them how they can do it. He tells them three things that will help them run with perseverance. Three important lessons, three truths that you and I need to know that will help us run our race. Let me highlight them from you, for you as we go through verses one and three. How do you run the race of your life? What does it take to run the race of your life? The first thing comes right off the top in verse one. To run the race of your life, you've got to listen to the right witnesses. The author is telling them, God is telling you, God is telling me to run the race of your life, to run with endurance. You're gonna have to learn to listen to the right witnesses, not the wrong voices, but the right ones. To run the race of your life, listen to the right people. You gotta listen to the right people, the right witnesses, the ones who are telling you the right thing. I see that right off the bat because he talks about these people, these witnesses. Did you see that in verse one? Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, a great cloud of witnesses. Now, I don't know about you, but over the years I've read that, and I've always wondered, who, like, who exactly is that? Who are the great cloud of witnesses? The great cloud, what does that mean? Well, in the context, he's talking about the people he just referenced in chapter 11. Did you notice how verse one begins with the word therefore? So in other words, in light of what I just said, therefore, we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. And this great cloud are the men and the women who are listed in chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is one of those chapters that's kind of, you know, often lifted up as like, this is a stellar one, you gotta know this. Hebrews 11 is kind of the Bible's hall of fame or the hall of faith at least for the Older Testament, for the Old Testament believers. In chapter 11, we get short vignettes on the stories of Abel and Abraham and Sarah, Joseph, Moses, Gideon, David, Daniel, a bunch of those people that we've read about in the Old Testament. And uh, they're, they're pictured as this great cloud of witnesses, a great cloud. He, he specifically calls them witnesses. Did you catch that? A great cloud of witnesses. What does that mean, that they're witnesses? Well, when we use the word a witness, someone who's a witness, we, we mean it usually in one of two ways. It, it actually can blend into both, but often we're emphasizing one of two things. Sometimes when we talk about a witness, we're talking about someone who sees something. Sometimes when we talk about a witness, we're talking about someone who speaks something, right? Like someone who sees something, an eyewitness. Sometimes when we use the word say, he was a witness, he was an eyewitness. Acts chapter 2, verse 32, Peter says, he says, Christ is risen from the dead and we are witnesses. Like we saw it. We saw him with our eyes. So we're, we, sometimes a witness is someone who sees something. Sometimes we talk about a witness as someone who says or speaks something. In a witness who's in court. 
right? They're, called, they're told to tell what they know to be true. Jesus said this to the first disciples, Acts 1.8, and you will be my witnesses. Like, you're, you're to go out there and tell what you know to be true about me. So here in our verse, verse 1, we're told that we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, these men and women that we heard about in the Old Testament. So here's a question for you. Do you think that he's saying that these people are, these witnesses are more like seeing something or are they more saying something? Well, good biblical scholars go either way. And when I was younger, I used to think it was that they were seeing something. Here's how I pictured it. They were the great cloud of witnesses. They were, as it were, up in heaven. In, I pictured it like they are in the heavenly bleachers or the heavenly box seats. And they're looking down on you and me as we're running our race. That's how I saw it. We're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. They're watching us. And let that motivate you on because they're watching and while they may be, we don't know exactly what those in heaven see on earth, I've come to think, I think the text is actually emphasizing this other side, that when he says they're witnesses, he's really emphasizing what they are saying, what they are speaking. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, keep your place here and turn back a page to chapter 11 and look at verse 4. 11 verse 4 starting to go through the witnesses and the very first one is Abel Cain and Abel remember Abel he was killed by his brother it says verse 4 by faith Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain did by faith he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offering now catch this into verse 4 and by faith he still speaks even though he's dead the author is saying this, hey, you know what? Abel, he's dead on earth. He's actually still living, and he's still speaking. He's saying something to you. And I think these cloud of witnesses are men and women who are speaking to us. And you say, well, what are they saying? Well, chapter 11 tells you. You know what they're saying? They're saying it's worth it to follow God. It's worth it to stay in the race. It's worth it to keep on believing. Don't give up. Their lives are a testimony to us. They are a witness to us that we should keep on in the race of faith. They kept on, and now they're, by their lives, they speak to us. By their legacies, they speak to us. So our author in chapter 12, verse 1, says this. You want to keep running the race with endurance? Here's one thing you're going to have to do. You've got to listen to the right people. You've got to listen to the right witnesses. See, there's a lot of voices that you're going to hear in your life, people telling you what to do or what not to do. And if you listen to the wrong people, you can make the wrong choices. But if you listen to the right people who are telling you the right thing, it will help you run with endurance. You say, well, how do I listen to these witnesses? Well, the writer of Hebrew really talks about two ways. There's probably more than two, but two that come out that I think very clearly. You want to listen to the right people? You want to listen to the right witnesses? Here are two easy things you can do. Number one, read the Bible. Read the Bible. You say, why do you say that one? Well, because chapter 11 tells us all the stories of these men and women, and their stories are in the Bible. So you want to hear from them? You want to let their life speak to you? Then read, read the Bible. Read their stories. Read the Old Testament. Read the New Testament. Read about the men and women of faith who ran with perseverance, not with perfection, but with perseverance. Read it over and over you say, well, why do you have to tell us that? We're a bunch of Christians. We go to Calvary Baptist Church. Of course we read the Bible. And I say, I hope so. 
but I'm not always sure. A couple of years ago, the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada did a massive nationwide survey called the Canadian Bible Engagement Study. And when I read the results of it, it rocked me. It, it wrecked me. You know what they found? They found among Canadians in general that in the last 20 years, Bible reading has plummeted in our country. 20 years ago, about 28% of Canadians said they read the Bible at least once a week. But now that number is down to like 14%. And only 4 or 5% of Canadians read the Bible every day. In fact, this is the one that wrecked me the most. They, they uh, surveyed Christians, evangelical Christians, and they found that 36% of us, one in three, read the Bible seldom or never. Like seldom or never? One in three of us? And I'm saying, how are you going to stay in the race? You're not hearing the right voices. You're not listening to God's voice. So you want to stay in the race? You got to listen to the right people, listen to the right witnesses, listen to God's voice. So here's a challenge for you. If, if reading the Bible for you is kind of spotty, if you're saying, yeah, I know I should, but I just, I'm busy and I don't get to it, then let me just say this. When I was in high school, I got challenged by a speaker to read the Bible at least five minutes a day. In fact, he asked us to take an oath that we would promise God that we would read the Bible five minutes a day, and I did. Later on, I was reading Ecclesiastes that you better not make an oath unless you tend to keep it. So right now, I started thinking, yikes, I really got in deep on this one. But it started me on a habit. And now for those, you know, I don't know, 40 years, when I wake up, it's like the first thing is like, I told God I would read his word. And five minutes is stretched out into more than that. But the point is this, if you'll do this day after day after day, you'll be hearing the right voices, the right witnesses. It'll help you stay in the race. So you want to listen to the right people? Read the scriptures, read the Bible. That's one thing. I said there were two things that the author of Hebrews says. Not only read the Bible, but here's the second one. Listen to godly leaders. Listen to godly leaders. You want to hear the right people? Make sure you're around godly men and women. Look at chapter 13 and verse 7. You'll see it. Chapter 13 and verse 7. He says, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Like, remember those people that spoke God's word to you. You listened to them. You heard them speak God's word. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. You want to stay in the race of faith? Keep listening to the people who speak God's word to you. You got to hear it again. And that's why I want to commend you. On this Sunday morning, here you are at Calvary. And I hope this is not just a one-off for you. I hope this is like regular, like you're here. You're, because you say, I need to hear it. And I need to be in a Bible study where I'm listening to godly people. I need to surround myself with voices that are going to help me stay in the race. You know, when it comes to listening to godly people, here's, here's another way you can do it. Um, you can listen to godly leaders, but they don't all have to be alive. You can read biographies, biographies of men and women of faith. This summer, I read the biography of Adoniram and Ann Judson, First Baptist Missionaries. The book is called To the Golden Shore. I have rarely read a more of a page-turner book in my life, and I've almost never read a book that has impacted me. You can read the stories of godly people. You listen to them. So you want to stay in the race? First thing, you've got to listen to the right people. 
You can do that by reading God's word, listening to godly leaders. That's the first thing he says. But if you go back to chapter 12, Hebrews 12, we find a second thing that you need to do if you want to stay in the race and run the race of your life. To run the race of your life, not only listen to the right people, but secondly, you got to lay aside the wrong influences. you got to lay aside the wrong influences. You need to put off, put down those things that are going to slow you down or knock you down. Lay aside the wrong influences. Look at it in chapter 12, verse 1. You'll see it. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, here it is, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance. The author says, listen, you got to put aside the wrong influences, and he gives us two categories of wrong influences. Did you see them? Look closely at it. What are the two categories? One thing we would call it's everything that what? That hinders, right? So all hindrances, that would be one. And the other category is and the what? And the sins that so easily entangle us. So he says, you want to run this race? Well, you're going to have to get rid of some things. And the two things, two categories, hindrances and sins. You say, what's the difference? Well, hindrances likely are things that are not inherently wrong, but they slow you up in your race. They're not inherently evil, but they're slowing you down. They're push, pulling you down. They're things that aren't helping you in your race of faith in walking and running with Christ. A number of years ago, I worked at a Christian camp all summer, and I taught junior hires, uh, and it was, a, it was really a fun summer. Some of you have worked at camps, and you know what I'm talking about. So I, every, every week, I had a seminar with these junior hires, and my seminar was on running the Christian marathon, and I taught them out of these verses. And I was trying to think, how can you help junior hires to get a picture of what hindrances are? So I decided to act it out. And what I would do is I would come into the room. I'd say, Let me, I'm going to go out for a minute. I'm going to come back, and you tell me what's wrong with this picture. So I'd go out, and I was dressed in running attire. But then I would come in, and I'd have swim fins on my feet, and I had a big beach ball and a ghetto blaster. This was like in the 80s, so you get that, right? So I'd have all this stuff and a backpack on, and I'd say, I'm ready to run. And even the junior hires would go, no, you're not. And I'd say, what's wrong? They'd go, the swim fins. And I'd say, there's no law against running with swim fins. I didn't see anything in the rules about swim fins are very good things. And the ghetto blaster, in case I need some music to pump me up as I'm going. And the beach ball, in case I run by a beach. And the backpack, I got food in there. And even junior hires were getting, that's not going to help you run your race. Those things may not be wrong, but they're wrong for you because they're slowing you up. So let me ask you, not on a junior high level, but on an adult level, what are the equivalent of the swim fins, the ghetto blaster, the beach ball, and the backpack for you? What are the things that are not inherently wrong, but you know are occupying too much of your time, they're distracting you, they're pulling you away from running this wraith of faith? I was talking to a pastor this week on the phone, and he was telling me that in his church, a number of the young, younger couples with younger families, he said, you know what's crazy is these folks are so busy just doing life with their kids that we often don't see them in church. If they're sporting events, they're kind of traveling with their kids doing that. 
And often, mom and dad aren't connecting that much because one is running one way, and he says, I think there's some priority issues that are holding them back. Could there be priority issues in your life, in my life? What are the hindrances? If Jesus were to do an audit on your life, what would he say is something that is not wrong in itself, but it's become a weight for you, a hindrance? If you want to run with perseverance, you're going to have to put this thing aside. But it's not just hindrances. Verse 1 also says, lay aside the what? What was the other category? Sins. You know what sins are things that are wrong and slow you up. If you have a King James version of the Bible, you know that uh, your, your Bible says, lay, let us lay aside the sin that so easily besets us. The Puritans used to talk about what they called besetting sins. Besetting sins. Those are sins that have your number. Those are sins that know your address. Those are sins that have your cell phone number, and they're coming after you. And you, if you've lived as long as I have, you know what your besetting sins are. Like, you may not struggle on this one over here, but you know you struggle on this one over here. Besetting sins are those ones that so easily entangle us. John Owen, one of the Puritans, used to tell his congregation this, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Like, this is a cage match with you and sin. One of you is not walking out. And our writer says, you know what's going to knock you out of the race? Hindrances and sins. So you've got to lay those aside. That's what he says in verse 1. Let us throw off. You say, well, how do I throw them off? If I could throw them off, it wouldn't be my besetting sin. Well, one thing I would say on terms of laying those things down, did you notice he says, let us run the race? Let us. You're not in this race all by yourself. And one of the things God has designed to help you stay in your race are brothers and sisters who you run with. Like, do you got some hindrances? Do you got some besetting sins? And you say, yes, I do. And I'd say, well, so do I. So do all of us. And that's why we need to be in community. That's why you need to be in the DC groups. That's why you need to be part of a church fam because you need somebody else who will come alongside of you and at times cheer you on and pick you up and kick you in the bum and say, I love you, but we're not going down here. See, if you're going to run your race with perseverance, you've got to listen to the right people, the witnesses. You've got to lay aside the wrong influences. But there's still one more thing. And this one, I think, is the pinnacle. This one is the most important. It comes out in verses 2 and 3. If you want to run your race with endurance, if you want to run the race of your life, verses 2 and 3 are going to say this. You've got to look at the right person. You've got to keep your eyes fixed on the right person. You've got to look at the right person. Verse 2, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He says, here's what you need to do. You need to run. You need to run looking at Christ. You need to fix your eyes on him. I don't know if you know the name Eric Little. Eric Little was an Olympian in the 1924 games in Paris. Uh, Chariots of Fire, the movie was about him. Eric Little won a gold medal in the 400-meter race. His story is amazing. That's another one of the biographies you should read. It's called, I think it's called something like More Than Gold. And uh, it's an incredible story of Eric Little. Here's the funny thing about Little. 
when, or Liddell, however you say it. I was with some Scottish guys this summer and he corrected me. I said Liddell, he said Little. So I'm going with the Scots because he was a Scot. He would run in a very unorthodox way. When, he, when Eric would run, he'd throw back his head. And I'm guessing that's not aerodynamically great, but that's how he ran. In other words, it's almost like he ran looking up. And if you're going to run your race of faith, you've got to run like Eric did. You've got to look up. You have to look at the right person. And verse 2 tells you you want to look at two things about Jesus, two things you need to fix your eyes on, focus your attention on, consider two things about Jesus. Look at verse 2. You'll see it. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. First thing that you look at Jesus as you run is that he endured the cross. You think about his cross. You think about what he did. See, verse 3 says, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You're called to run with endurance, so think about what Jesus endured. Think of what he endured, the cross, scorn from sinful men. He says, think about that. Think about Jesus who saw the joy set before him. He saw the joy on the far side of the suffering, and he ran. And our author is saying this, there's going to be days when you feel like quitting. There's going to be days when you are so discouraged that you just feel, I can't go another step. But he says, at those moments, you think about Jesus, consider what he did. Consider the opposition he dealt with. Consider the cross he carried so you won't lose weary in heart. Verse 4 goes on to say, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. In other words, look, you may think you have it bad, You've not shed your blood like Jesus did. So when you're tempted to slow down or stop, you consider him. Consider what he endured. But that's not all he says. Did you see what else you're supposed to consider? Look at verse 2. You'll see it. Not only did Jesus endure the cross, but he says, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You're supposed to fix your eyes on that. So you fix your eyes on what Jesus did when he went to the cross, his death, but you also fix your eyes on where he is now, resurrected, ascended, and specifically seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now that phrase, do you see it at the end of verse 2 there? Sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's a huge phrase in the book of Hebrews. It shows up four times. So like this is a big concept. Jesus sat down at the right hand of the throne of God and you're thinking, what's so big about that? Like why would the author go over that like four times? Well, let's break it down. Right hand, sitting at someone's right hand, what, what, do, you, what do you think that conveys? It conveys honor, right? Sit at my right hand. It's like you get the place of honor and Jesus is pictured seated at the right hand of God the Father. In other words, he's honored by God and the reason is, is because he, as we're told in Hebrews 1, verse 3, is the exact representation of the divine being. Jesus is God. He's God the Son. And now he's glorified with God the Father. He's at the right hand. But the part I really want you to see is it says that he sat down at the right hand. Like, why is that significant? Why is it important that we know that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the, of the throne? We'll go back just a little bit to chapter 10 and look at verses 11 and 12, and you'll see why. Chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. Day after day, every priest stands, catch that, 
Every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, talking of Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, that's himself, his body, he sat down at the right hand of God. Here's what he's saying. In the Old Testament temple, first the tabernacle, then the temple, the priest would go into the holiest place and there were no chairs in there. And every year the priest would go in and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. He would do it year after year and he stood doing it. He never sat down because his work was never done. He would do it for years and die and then the next priest would come and take it over and he would do the same thing and he never sat down when he was in the Holy of Holies in the presence of God because the work was never done until Jesus came our great high priest, who offered himself on the cross and finished it. What did he say on the cross? It is finished. And he finished it. And when he was resurrected and exalted, he sat down to signify the work is done. The work of redemption, the work of atoning for sin, it's done. Now here's why that's important when you're running your race. Sometimes you will be tempted to drop out because you feel like a loser as a Christian. You feel like you stumble so badly, you fall repeatedly, you are spiritually dislocated, and there are times when Satan will whisper to you, what is the use? Other people at Calvary can run this race, but you are hopeless. You are disqualified. You have had besetting sins get you again and again and again. And those voices will play in your head and you will be tempted to think, why bother? That minute, you know what you need to do? You need to fix your eyes on the fact that Jesus endured the cross and sat down. He finished. He paid fully for all of your sins. And the writer of Hebrews saying, you got to go back to that again. You remind yourself of that again. I love the words to the song, before the throne of God. The second stanza says this. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Does that happen to you? When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Amen. Man, that's awesome. And that's what keeps you running on days when you think, I have fallen too many times. What is the use? You look at him. You don't just gaze at your sin. You gaze at the one who paid for your sin, what he endured for you and what he does for you in heaven. So you want to run the race of your life? Do you want to run with endurance? You say, yes, I do. Do you sometimes feel it's uphill and against the wind? You say, yeah, sometimes it feels that way. Then here's what you do. You make sure you're listening to the right people. You hear the witnesses. You make sure with God's help and the help of your brothers, you're laying aside the wrong influences. And then you make sure you're fixing your eyes on the right person. Because as you do that, God's grace is coming to you and strengthening you. You see, Jesus didn't save you 
To, to quote John Stephen Aquari, the Tanzanian runner, and to paraphrase him a bit, I'd say this. Jesus didn't come however many miles it is from heaven to earth so that you would start the race. Jesus came from heaven to earth, died and rose again so that you would finish it. He wants you to run the race of your life and as you keep your eyes on him, he's enough to keep you going. Can we just, uh, the worship team's gonna come and lead us in a final song, but would you just bow your heart and eyes and head with me? And I, I think there, there's at least a couple groups of you here I want to address. Some of you here may not even really be in the race yet. You've been in church, but you're not yet in Christ. You've never yet surrendered your life to Christ. You've never yet embraced what he did on the cross. You're still trying to be good enough for God. You're still thinking that your spiritual resume is going to cut it with him. But your only hope in life and eternity is putting your faith in the one Savior who paid for all of your sins, the Lord Jesus. And if you've never done that, today, would you just bow your heart and cry out to him in the silence of this moment and say, Jesus, I need you. Please forgive me. Thank you that you died and rose again. I trust in you. Would you do that today? Make today the day you come to know Christ and start your race. But there's another group of you here. Some of you here are the ones who are thinking about dropping out. You, you limped into this auditorium today, and as other people sang, you felt like a poser because you feel like you don't really fit. You're not good enough. You fall too many times. If people knew your story, they wouldn't want you is what you think. And to you, I would say, the author of Scripture, the Bible itself, God himself says to you, listen, listen, he can help you run the race of your life. Don't give up. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. So today, would you say, Lord, if you'll help me, I'm keeping my eyes on you and I'm keeping going. And then finally, maybe a third group. Some of you are running hard and you're going well. And to you, I would say, keep on. It's gonna be worth it. It is worth it now, but it's really gonna be worth it when you finish. There is nothing better than walking or running with Christ. Keep your eyes fixed on him. And may God help you, may God help all of us run the race of our lives. Father, you know our needs. Wherever we are, help us to look to Christ who's enough for all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.